Our gospel reading today comes from Luke's account. Just previous to this message, Jesus gets baptized, and then he goes away into the desert. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where, for forty days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy God, as we enter the season of Lent, begin to think more about this Lord's Prayer that has been sealed in our hearts by years of it. May we hear the words anew. And as we face them in ourselves, may we see you, the Christ, in us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a pleasing sacrifice unto you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hey, Mommy. What do you know about the devil? Lori Brant Hale must attend a church like ours because her boy, who's just shy of four years old, listened up to the message taught to her in Sunday school that was also the same message shared in their worship service, the same as we do here. Now, Brant is an associate professor of theology who studies Bonhoeffer and Christology, so she has her mind jumping to a whole lot of places to answer this question, a spectrum of theological views, theodicies, the problem of evil. Do I tell my child, she said, about what I know about the devil? Do I start with Augustine? Do I traverse the conservative, literal to liberal, metaphorical understandings of what the Hebrew Bible calls Hasitan, the evil one, explaining would I add the complexities of a New Testament theology that picked up a whole slew of demons and angelology that they didn't have in the Hebrew Bible after the diaspora of the Jewish people in Babylon who then confront a cornucopia of ancient Near Eastern myths and then try to come home to Israel to reconcile these multiple faiths and 
personified the concept of evil? She didn't. She said, well, what do you know about the devil? That's good parenting right there. And the boy's response was also good. Well, if I were at a store and you and dad were in one aisle and I was in another aisle and Brant reports that his hushed tones became downright conspiratorial at this point. If there was candy, he paused for effect. The devil would say, you should take some. If only temptation were that easy. Now, I haven't met the red-horned demon myself, but I do know for a fact that humans love to personify ideas and concepts that are otherwise difficult to grasp onto. I could go on ad infinitum about the abstract notion of temptation. But if I say to you, the devil is making you do it, you get it. You understand subject, object, action. You understand the line of what's going on there. Because that's how we're wired. We're wired to understand people in terms of people. We're, under, term, we're wired to understand how these concepts work. That's why we love the person of Jesus in the Christian faith. Because not only is it God, but it's a metaphor that we get. We understand human-to-human -human interactions and the complexities. We understand those things. The point of personification is for you to take seriously the work of an otherwise abstract idea, right? So what's more powerful to hear from your pastor today? You are being faced with temptations in your innermost being with which you must struggle every single day. Or... You are fighting the battle of your life against the evil one who incessantly places temptations in front of you that you need to fight off. See what works for you as we go through these two scenarios. Scenario one, you want to lose weight. You know that to do so, you should make that rational choice that would bring you closer to your goal. And today, your lunch order should be a salad with some protein, not the Frisco melt and fries that you saw in the ad. But by the time you get to your workplace cafeteria, you've been yelled at your coworkers by, for missing a deadline. Your cubicle neighbor won't stop playing Don't Stop Believing like it's 80s reunion day. And your best friend while walking down to lunch with you, shares how much they've been craving pizza all morning and how they can't wait to get their hands on a slice of Supreme. The verdict, depending on your glucose levels in your brain, most likely you're going to take the path well friscoed. The path with the choice that gives you the most instant pleasure but long-term loss. For the same reason, by the way, you don't want to go in front of parole judges right before lunch. Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for research on this. The lower our energy levels, the worse off we are at making non-emotional decisions. So what evil caused the temptations in those stories? Was it the devil? Was it your will? Was it the system 
out to maximize profits, a collection of wills, if you will. When the devil reminds Jesus, who hasn't eaten in 40 days, that he has the power to turn a rock into bread, Jesus responds, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Point, Jesus. Scenario two, which I call tempted by the fruit of another. This is 80s day for you. You've been missing your family because of some real late nights at work and a lot of work trips have been taking you out of town, plus the normal slew of extracurricular activities on your kid's plate. And your partner and you and your family plan on a weekend outing to go skiing in West Virginia this weekend. You set it up and you're all set until this afternoon, this Friday afternoon, when your boss asks you to stay late. Because a new client says they're interested in using your services and it would be the biggest account ever. Oh, and by the way, their CEO is in town this Saturday. So could you give them the outlines of a pitch? Just the outlines. Oh, and of course, you've been up for that salary doubling promotion. But your boss didn't have to remind you of that, did they? What's the cost-benefit analysis on that one? Was that the devil? Your will? The system, collection of wills, capitalism? Who's to blame? Then, the scripture says, the devil led Jesus up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. By this time, I hope you've caught on to a trend, which is that no matter who or what the devil is, wherever you place it in your metaphysics, it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the temptation. Temptations can sound fiery, but the real power of the temptation is not in the thing, but in the underlying cause. When work is so crazy that you can barely see your spouse, when systems of housing and food and culture set us up to make the bad choice the easier choice. See, the temptations are just a symptom the problem is at the root. Now, this isn't to wipe away the power and problem of the will. Neurologically, the problem can be summed up like this. At our cognitive core, we highly are biased towards marginal cost decisions instead of long-term thinking, which is what behavioral economists would say is we like it now more than we would like more of it later. We're like rats. In 1974 study, they put two buttons in front of these rats. They made sure they were worked out a little bit tired, like you going to the cafeteria at the end of 1139 or so. And one button would give the rat that one food pellet right now. 
the other button would give them 10 food pellets, but in 10 seconds. You know which one they press. Give me it now. Similar things have been shown with the marshmallow test that was done with little children, which, by the way, has been shown to be invalid as a test. But if we are, in some ways, like rats, how do we play the spiritual long game, dying to ourselves in the moment that we might truly rise to new life? Not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered from the evil one. I like to think of the kingdom of God and our bodies as vehicles of that kingdom. And a kingdom is a long game. In contemplative practice, looking at that in yourself is known as practicing, in, in the wrong way, is practicing your personality instead of recognizing your true self and true presence within you. Oftentimes we describe ourselves in terms of our activities, the actions we do. But the most dreadful of all modern temptations is the ability to skip past what's underlying our activities, to think less about motives and more about the doing. We have the temptation to just swipe. If you're bored right now in the sermon, you could just go and swipe. Or you could tweet something I'm saying, and that's okay. You could go tonight to another article instead of having that hard conversation with your spouse. Anything, another show, another stream from Netflix, another video, anything to keep us from confronting that true pain. It is hard to look at our shadow side, but it is the most important work. We like in church often to be all about the joy and the happiness, but as Richard Rohr suggests, resurrection takes care of itself. It's getting people in the tomb. That's the hard part. Getting ourselves into the tomb is the hard part. Dan Ariely is a psychologist who I think points us to a spiritual truth. For years in books, studies, some really amazing TED Talks, and now is the director for the Center for Advanced Hindsight, based out of Duke. Ariely has shared widely the reality that we are present moment biased. We see the world and ourselves through that moment we live in instead of our long-term sense of purpose and call. His lab has found some really amazing ways to remind us of our long-term goals. So if you are like me, if you are among us who struggle to get out of bed in the morning sometimes, his group created the Clocky. The Clocky is an alarm clock with wheels. At night, you press the button, you set the alarm, and at some point during the night, it roves around so that when you hear the alarm going off in the morning, you have a new challenge every morning of figuring out where your alarm is coming from. This is also known as a level of purgatory. But to me, the even more fascinating tool that they've developed is called the Snooze You Lose, an innovative digital alarm clock that's connected to your bank account. Yes, you lose money if you don't get there in time. And most importantly, this 
bank account is connected to a charity that you hate. Every 10 seconds you don't get up, another dollar goes to the political party you most wish to not see win an election. I'm assuming this was in a DC household. But Ariely's machines, of course, remind us that that intentional looking at our temptations, of being reminded of them, of seeing them in the face, whether it's Beelzebub or ourselves, that that is the way towards real life. Not because it ends the temptations. You don't all of a sudden get better at waking up in the morning. But because it forces us to see our true identity, our true desires, our real goals, and the cost of not moving towards full communion with God. Thinking about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness as it's connected to the the previous passage we didn't read, Jesus' baptism. Henry Nouwen says this. He says that the temptations to move Jesus away are to move Jesus away from his core identity. He was tempted to believe he was someone else. You are the one who can turn stone into bread. You are the one who can jump from the temple. You are the one who can make others bow to your power. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the beloved of God. I think, says Nowen, Jesus' whole life is a continual claiming of that identity in the midst of everything. My friends, your whole life is a continual claiming of your identity, baptized, beloved child of God, in the midst of everything. So what if we view Jesus' time in the wilderness as a time, yes, we are tempted to stray, but to stray from our identity as beloved children? What would that mean for your observance of Lent? Could you see, could we see the difficult wilderness times of our lives as times that hold us away from our identity as beloved children of God? And to see that is the true challenge, not to focus on the symptoms? Could we take on a practice during Lent that reminds us of our belovedness? Could we see Lent as an opportunity to remove the distractions and obstacles in our lives that prevent us from living into our core identity? as beloved, baptized children of God. In the end, our temptations tell us more about ourselves than any personification that we can construct. But to God be the glory that we do not walk through the desert alone. In another book, Nowen suggests that the best Lenten disciplines of faith are the disciplines of the heart, the discipline of the book, and the discipline of the church or the community. If you're the kind of person who always finds yourself thinking about things and have a hard time getting them to your heart, well then this Lent, maybe you need to practice a discipline of the heart and to feel the faith more than you think it. This is usually the hardest one for Presbyterians. There's a discipline of the book, those who like to intellectualize and, and to, uh, to, or those who like to feel the faith, rather, pour yourselves into some reading, hear other perspectives, 
feel those feelings, but also think about God's journey for you. But the most important one to now and into us today is the discipline of the church or the community of faith. Jesus got where he got because he was surrounded by a beloved community. Yes, we don't get as many of the stories in the Bible, but he was taught and raised from the beginning that he was a beloved child of God. And when that identity is your core, there is no temptation that can lead you astray. How this Lent will you claim your beloved identity? Lori Hill Brandt's four-year-old understood. That's why mommy asked him, Honey, if I were at the store and dad and I were in one aisle and you were in another aisle and there was candy and the devil said you should take some, what would you say back to the devil? A genuinely sweet grin lit up his entire face. And without hesitation, he replied, Oh, I would say thank you. It sounds like we live in a world of four-year-olds facing temptation. It's not because we say yes to the temptations, because we forget what mission of God brought us to the place that we're at. My prayer is that as we walk towards the cross this Lent, we will remember the Missio Dei, that mission of God that has propelled you along in your calling all your days. That we would truly look at our shadow side, at our temptations, to see past them, to see our true self, and to see the image of Christ calling out to you, saying, follow me. Past your pain, past your distractions you've built up for yourselves. Past the walls and the digital interactions you've built to numb yourself. Truly feel everything on this Lenten road. Because on the other side of the cross, once you get yourself into the tomb, then, and only then, will you have a chance at resurrection. Let us pray together the prayer our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.